0: Hey guys, before we start the show, can you feel something changing? Something changing in the air. It smells a little different when you walk outside. It's it's getting maybe some parts of the country getting a little colder out. You know what that means? It means it's football season. It's coming upon us, and you know. Maybe not all libertarians love football, but it's okay to love football. It's okay to need a distraction from the craziness that we all uh, have to deal with in today's modern world. And what we do on Lines of Liberty, we have a great bonus show called Degenerate Gamblers. Myself, Brian McWilliams and Rico, we uh, go through our weekly bets every week. We have a league that we uh, have with our pride members where we're competing against each other. You can get into that. You can get involved in that if you want to. And we have a show every week, too, of course, where we're talking about those, those bets and games and, and telling old college stories. It's a really, really freaking awesome show. But on top of that, we've teamed up with an awesome sponsor, Football Insider Edge, and we're going to bring you a deal. Now, now, these guys are bringing great content. They have a great community. Awesome research. And what we're offering um, with them is as supporters of this show, they are currently offering you a 20% discount on any of their monthly or full-season plans on their website. Just go to footballinsideredge.com and use code LION check checkout to take advantage of this discount today. doesn't matter if you're just a fantasy football player, if you're a DraftKings or FanDuel, or if you're a degenerate gambler, if you like to bet on every single game. These guys have the content for you to take your your gambling, to take your fantasy football to the next level. Check out footballinsideredge.com and use code LION at checkout to get a discount on a monthly or full season package today.
1: We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman.
0: All right, my guest today on Finding Freedom is Mike Wharton. Uh, Mike and I have been friends; uh, we've been friends for a while, and uh, we've had some interesting conversations in the past that have not been recorded. And uh, you know, with everything happening in Afghanistan recently, and the the pullout, and how messy that was, and the 20 years being at war, I wanted to bring someone on the show who had firsthand experience on the ground there, a firsthand account and, uh, and Mike fits that bill. Um, he uh, has served in the Air Force since February of 2012. Um, he was let's see he was in Afghanistan from February 2014 until July 2014. Also uh, served in Ku- uh, Kuwait, Jordan, Qatar and the UAE. Uh, When he was in Afghanistan, he spent most of his time at the Bagram uh, Air Force Base, hopped around um, over there as well to different places, Uh, worked as a civil engineer and a volunteer medical worker on the base. He's currently a staff sergeant and he's also trained as a crane operator, firefighter, and EMT. Mike, welcome to Finding Freedom. That's great to be on. Thanks for coming on the show. And let's, I mean, before we get into talking about Afghanistan, that'll probably be, you know, a lot of the show and talking about the, the military in general, most likely. Um, let's, let's start with you. Um, I know that, you know, we have similar, uh, you know, ideological, philo- you know, philosophical backgrounds when it comes to politics and, and things of that nature. But uh, where did you start growing up? You know, what kind of household did you grow up in politically?
1: So I grew up in a pretty Republican household. Uh, My great-grandfather was actually an important person in Republican politics. Uh, He, uh, back in the 60s, was a prominent party member in Michigan, uh, being an acquaintance to Governor George Romney, Mitt Romney's dad. Um, He was also, he had met uh, Vice President Nixon uh, before, he Um, went to the 1968 Republican convention, uh, got laughed off by people because he said Ronald Reagan was going to be president one day. Um, He he, uh, was the mayor of a small town for about a decade. And also it's police chief. And um, when he left office, uh, the guy that replaced him uh, was so bad that they uh, wrote uh, my great grandfather back in on the next election. And he had to serve another year because Of Just popular support. Oh, wow. And so uh, so he was sort of my mentor in all this because he lived to be 103. So he didn't die until I was 21. So I got to know him very well. And I didn't have either of my grandfathers. So um, it was my great-grandfather that I learned a lot from.
0: That's amazing in itself, just to pause you there. I mean, to get that type of you know, generational experience from, you know, a great-grandfather. I mean, yeah, I never, I didn't come close to meeting my great-grandfather. He passed away long before I was born. So that's a, that's a really unique experience.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. He was, uh, you know, he was a significant figure and that sort of thing. He was just a domineering guy too. And he was like 6'3", broad, short. He he, was, he, he looked very much like Trump's body type and hmm. uh, he was he was a very domineering figure in society. Yeah.
0: That's that's pretty cool. So um he, he was a, a Republican then. Um so what uh what, what were some of your other influences? Cuz I know, I mean, and p- people maybe give you crap for it. I don't. Um for kind of you, you supported Tulsi Gabbard in in her run for uh for president, right? So you you're not locked in to, to one lane. So you can kind of talk about t- talk about your your views around that.
1: So I would say, like, uh, ultimately my political viewpoints come from uh, sort of all over the place, but it's more or less outlying figures. And oftentimes, uh, like, in the 08 elections and even in, like, 2011 and early 2012, I was still a proud supporter of Mitt Romney. You know, it was because, you know, he was because George Romney is my favorite governor in history. And that's the kind of person I want to be. When I run for Michigan governor uh, in the future, and that's uh, a lot of the, because uh, he was definitely this ideal leader, sort of, um, in in how he approached things. Mi- obviously, he doesn't meet that standard, but, you know, at the time, you know, I was younger, and it was my first presidential election, and I was very late to the round poll train, and I didn't really... It was 2011 and 2012. I was sort of adopting a lot of that into my viewpoints, and it, mm-hmm. by the time by the time I sort of converted to the the Ron Paul thinking strategy, it was a little late. But I mean, it, it's it's still, it, Ron Paul has played a huge role in transforming me from being you know a kid growing up during the war on terror and kind of being a, a you know a Bush supporting neocon. Who being more influenced with the ideals of liberty and so i look at i look at that uh you know ron paul has been a huge transformation in me i was living in missouri when i uh luckily met um with austin peterson and i became friends with him and i was on his presidential campaign in 2016 and so and it was just uh, amazing to see, you know, this out of nowhere um campaign get launched in late 2015 and then grow to a six-figure campaign that got um, national media attention in what you know what should have just been fizzled out easily.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring that up. I was thinking about that recently. How Austin Peterson really did pretty much come out of nowhere. Like I remember his early videos when it would just be him, like just sitting at his laptop, just, you know, just talking stream mm-hmm. of consciousness and uh, yeah, to be able to launch basically his entire political career from that.
1: Pretty incredible, and, and he, really. Oh yeah, he was definitely the, the early adopters of live streaming, you know, when it came to mm-hmm. campaigning and, you know, before him, I didn't know of anybody, maybe like Cory Booker, maybe. He, Cause he was kind of on top of, you know, tech trends and stuff, but I didn't see any politicians really taking hold of that. And then mm-hmm. after 2016, you just see like everyone doing it now. And, um, even Elizabeth was Warren
0: and, oh, uh, God, the,
1: the, the drinking,
0: <laughs> good to go get me a beer. Yeah. <laughs> Communicating with someone with a Darth Vader picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, I,
1: anyway, like uh, you know, that campaign really opened me up and it made great connecting friendships with a lot of people who are probably going to be listening to this. Um, Uh, Aside from that, though, uh, during the uh, 2020 timeframe, I I was very supportive of uh, several of the Democratic figures. I mean, honestly, I don't know anyone who didn't support a single Democrat just because there were so many. There were 29 of them. I mean, like, even the most hardcore Republican would be like, oh, yeah, I like Tulsi. (laughs) uh,
0: Yeah, I mean, not even – know. I know what you mean. Like, because we went through the brutal exercise of – I think we watched almost every single one and, you know, did a reaction show to them, which was which crazy, but yeah, along, you know, along the lines of doing it, there was, you know, different, different characters who would kind of rise to the top, like, uh, Marianne Williamson, who was like, I well, love
1: she's, her. <laughs> she's
0: kind of insane, but she's saying some things that, you know, point out how absurd, you know, this, the Democrat party is, but oh, since yeah. then she's, yeah, she's kind of even lost her way more than that, but
1: she has definitely fallen off and, like the last few weeks it's been hard to to watch you know what uh and before before we get on to everything with afghanistan i, I do have mm-hmm. to make the note of a lot of the left-leaning people and i also have to even say like to me i i feel like i've ascended a lot in political thought and i don't even i don't even like saying left and right anymore because i don't believe in those concepts but for for the perceived leftist you know viewpoints there were so many people good on that side, uh, that had like good perspectives. And then like this Afghan withdrawal happened and these people became Biden shields like overnight. Uh, the biggest ones I of was, mm-hmm. um, crystal and Sager. And I'm like, you, you guys were the chosen ones. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> and they immediately just started simping for Biden. And it was horrible. Yeah.
0: Well, um, didn't even, uh, didn't even Tulsi,
1: come out and support Biden did she end up endorsing I mean, him? no uh I think a lot of people misconstrue that when you actually go back and you and you watch what she said so what ended up happening was she was going to support Bernie Bernie told her no and Tulsi was like okay I know the writing on the wall just go vote for Biden people like she never explicitly said I support Joe Biden she never said I endorse Joe Biden she just said just go support the nominee like that was it and and mm-hmm. honestly you know if you're a democrat you're you're kind of stuck in that position cuz my she's a sitting democratic politician you kind of have no choice in that matter unless you do it like Justin Amash did and abandon the party mhm
0: yeah which maybe she should have done because i mean she should have yeah because the democrats i mean she's not she has no future in that party i mean it's not what she talks about is not aligned at all with uh with the party. But I, anyway, we, we, could, we could talk about that type of stuff the whole show. But um, let, let's get into your military background. So why did you join the Air Force? What, you know, what motivated you, inspired you, persuaded you to, uh, to go that route?
1: Well, if you really want to know the truth, it is because of the upcoming anniversary on Saturday. Um, okay. I was nine years old when 9-11 happened. I was in elementary school. It was fifth grade gym class. We were outside, and you know, just after nine o'clock, um, it was remarkably beautiful. I think that's what everyone agreed about that day. Was that that was mm-hmm. one of the most beautiful days ever? And you know, we, we were playing outside. You know, we, it was gym class, all that stuff, and uh, we got called in. And you know, I you know we're coming in. And uh, as we're coming in, I, I don't remember if it was when I was coming in or if we were already in the gym, but I could hear the jets take off in the distance because we were only a couple miles away from the base I serve at right now. And uh, at the time, they had F-16s. Those F-16s, I didn't know this until years later, but those F-16s had orders to go track down Flight 93. Hmm. Um, when I... Uh-oh. We 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 were left in the dark the whole day. The teachers wouldn't tell us anything. Um, so so we were just told something happened in New York. Something happened at the World Trade Center. Mind you, I was one of the only, I was an architectural nerd as a kid, so I was one of the only people who knew what that was. Uh, so much so, I think I was the only person in the whole school who knew about the 1993 uh, bombing there. And the teachers were like, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's just like that." And I'm like, "Oh okay."
0: The only reason and, uh, I knew about that 1993 bombing is because of the Biggie Smalls song. Oh, you know, yeah. He talks about, yeah, talks about blowing up the World Trade Center. Um, but a lot of people think that think that's talking about 9/11 because they don't understand time frames, but
1: yeah. Anyway. Um so anyway, uh you know, I I you know, I'm walking home with my best friend at the time, and, you know, we were talking about the whole thing and we get you know, I get back to my house my sisters are all around the TV. They're crying. And, and, you know, I'm looking at the TV and I see this big you know pile of smoke from New York. And, you know I know, I know the Manhattan skyline looks like, and I'm like, where's the world trade center. Mm-hmm. And that's when I had to have everything explained to me. And, you know, I started crying at that point in time. Um, so October 7th of that year was the day before my birthday. And, so, you know, I'm just about to turn 10 and that's when we go, uh, it's when we start attacking Afghanistan 10 years to that day, the day before my 20th birthday, I enlisted in the air force. Um, and I left in fact to go, uh, in, um, Valentine's day the following year, um, to basic training two years after that, I'm almost the day actually i'm actually in afghanistan so I'm, I'm 22 at the time i'm i get there and so it was a six-month deployment but with the additional of training it ended up being seven months and i spent uh like one month traveling around to different countries because they couldn't get my team in the right place uh or we were needed elsewhere and then we finally got to afghanistan and while I was there, I was initially on um, troop construction. Then I got placed onto rubber removal.
0: What, what does then, that mean? What does that mean? Troop construction.
1: Oh, so I'm sorry. I, I should explain things. So I'm a civil engineer. Uh, in the mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, and while I was over there, I was a part of the expeditionary civil engineering squadron. And within that, I was part of a thing called EPBS, which was the prime beef squadron. This... Uh, everything was based out of Qatar, but we would then go to Bagram And then Bagram was the central point for Afghanistan, which then you would be put out to other bases. It's a complex thing in CENTCOM. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm. Uh, oh shoot! What do I want to say? I am over there in February of 2014. I get there. I am working on uh, so let's, building let's, let's, projects.
0: Let's let's back up for a minute. So, oh yeah, sorry. So no, no, no I should be asking the questions. on am the host <laughs> of the podcast. But um, I mean, just just to dig into this, so, so you, you covered a lot there. You talked about the, the the motivations of being burned into your in your mind what happened on nine eleven, and that's sticking mm-hmm. with you all, all the way through. So you're um, twenty two years old, and you find yourself in Afghanistan. Um, I'm just curious. So so when when you were there. 22 years old um did you still have like, like in your mind at that point in time the reason you're there is because um you know you were you know r- writing the wrongs of the past trying to um really get I don't, retribution isn't the right word but uh, No I mean I
1: I never enlisted for the American Retribution aspects mm-hmm. um my original intention for enlisting in the military was to better myself physically, mentally, and emotionally. I was the kid that was picked on in school every day. I was you know very weak, I was uh, very sheltered i was yeah, I was a stereotypical nerd, um you know getting bullied all the time enlisting in the air force has definitely changed my entire life perspective i'm relatively physically fit you know I, of course i can always be better um but mm-hmm. i mean you know you and i talk health all the time yeah. undoubtedly i am more physically fit than i could like 92 percent of the population <laughs> um uh, yeah, before enlisting in the military i could barely run I, I couldn't even go a lap around the track. Now, like today, I just finished seven and a half miles. Um, nice. Thank you. Uh, and, and a lot of the stuff I started in the military. And then, you know, being in the military got me re- into uh, reading books. It got me into audiobooks. It got me into studying different aspects of life. You know, if I, if I had gone a typical college route after high school, I would have been, you know, stuck in probably a profession i didn't like you know what uh, you're know, sure i may have like a bachelor's degree but i'd be like upset i don't have a bachelor's degree right now but i have a wide variety of skill sets knowledge training i uh, there's almost nobody who has the skill sets i have in my combination mm-hmm. um and I kind of broke through like a lot of stereotypes. Like I'm, yes, I may be a nerd still. You, know, you can tell by what's behind me, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I, um, like my career field is pavements and heavy equipment operations. I'm a construction worker. You know, I'm, I work with the country boys, you know, with their pickup trucks and their dip that they chew and uh, their constant drinking and stuff. And here's me. I've never drank in my life. I've never smoked. I've never done drugs. I, yet i'm best friend or i'm good friends with all these people and i work consistently with them and i know how to build a road i know how to maintain roadways i know how to operate equipment and it's kind of like that amazing part in the military is you can break down these types of barriers and stereotypes and separations mm-hmm. and such and and I know a lot of libertarians, they don't like the idea of the military, but there are a lot of aspects within the military that I think turn people into libertarians. Look at how many veterans have become prominent libertarians.
0: All right, guys, I want to take a quick break in the show today to tell you about a great new sponsor that we have. I trust capital. If you're someone who maybe has a, you know, an old 401k that you moved into an IRA somewhere when you left a job, you just have the money sitting there. What do you do with it? Try to invest in stocks, whatever other bull crap out there. What if you could invest that money in crypto? Invest it in physical gold and silver. Well, you can do that with iTrust Capital. But with iTrust Capital, you have the tax benefits of an IRA while trading in crypto assets. And on top of that, like I said, you can also have access to buying physical gold and silver into your account. It's it's amazing. If you sign up using promo code LIONS, at iTrust Capital, you'll get the first month free. Now, iTrust Capital is safe and secure. Uh, they are backed by Coinbase Custody and Curve uh, to secure clients' digital assets. And they have 320 million of insurance to make sure your funds are safe and secure. On top of that, they are trusted. They have 1,300 reviews on TrustPilot. And they are 100% transparent in their fees, which you know I can't really say that about all other IRA providers. Now, whether you're holding your assets long-term or you wanna buy and sell with the market, iTrust Capital's IRA gives your account or provides the account the lowest transaction fees for buying Bitcoin or, or other digital currencies. As an iTrust client, you'll be able to log into your account, make trades 24-7, trades execute in real time, and settle in seconds. Um, they offer more cryptocurrencies than any other crypto IRA provider out there and they're adding more all the time. Go to itrustcapital.com. use promo code lions for your first month free. Yeah, well, well how much of that I don't I, I I do agree with you. I mean, it's I mean it's indisputable. You look at, you know, there's so many people who have gotten their lives right in the military, needing that, you know, needing that discipline, needing that focus. Um, but, but on top of that, how much of, you know, people joining the military becoming libertarians is when you're in there, and you, maybe you can talk about this in Afghanistan, what you see while you're over there, what you see, I mean, you see the reality of, of the way things are. So um, your experience in Afghanistan, did that, did that change your views? of, you know, foreign intervention in
1: other countries, things like that? So, Afghanistan has always been a crux for me ever since I got back seven years ago. Um, and the last, was it been, three and a half weeks now? Um, since the fall of Kabul, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, since that point in time, uh, the past week I've gotten better. But before then, I was going through a very deep bout of depression. Um, You know, I was crying myself to sleep um, a few days. I was getting just deeply emotional seeing the scenes, um, especially when the 13 troops died. I think I just about lost it then um, because a part of me had sort of like the survivor's guilt sort of thing. Feeling like I should have been over there to help them to protect them. Um, I think I think it's just in that mentality now because because I'm a firefighter and uh, in you know, I have the medical training now and I I just feel like it's my duty now it's my duty to be a hero in some regards and I I feel like I'm like I failed the people of afghanistan i failed our troops i failed everything because i wasn't there to help but i also know the futility of that statement i also know this was always a disaster this was always a house of cards that was going to come down and i just finished um a book um oh gosh i forgot the guy's name (laughs) uh but he it's called the afghanistan papers it came out last week um I had made a post about it. I don't know if you'd seen it. Um, I recommend everybody who's listening to this, please buy this book or get the audio book, which I did. Um, It is the best account of the war. And it showcases that the whole thing was always a disaster. Even before I was there, It, it was like a disaster from day one.
0: So it's called the Afghanistan papers
1: yes um it's
0: by uh craig whitlock does that sound yes right?
1: craig whitlock okay. yes thank you um it just came out uh he was actually on bill maher uh, a couple weeks ago the whole book like it ca- details the account of the last uh, 20 years and um oh sorry sorry i said something uh so it details the account for the whole uh, last twenty years of uh, the war, and uh, and how we just wasted all this spending and wasted all these lives for nothing. It, it was always going to be a failure. Uh, he has a great analogy about how the amount of money we were spending in Afghanistan was similar to when you're filling up like a generator and you're uh, using a funnel and you're overfilling the funnel and all of the, all of the gasoline spills out. Mm-hmm. That's basically what we were doing with money in Afghanistan. We were putting so much into Afghanistan that eventually it, uh, it was, it was detrimental to be spending that kind of money. The people didn't know what to do with it. The, the warlords were just kind of pocketing it all. But, um, the Afghan there's, there's, police this, there's this one
0: video that I, it could be old it could be new and, and who knows maybe it's not even from Afghanistan but it seemed like it was um, it was supposedly the Taliban shooting the video showing you know panning around showing all these guns on the floor that have been left there and then panning around mm-hmm. and showing just stacks of cash just t- you know tightly yeah. like wads, wads of you know hundreds wrapped Millions of dollars stacked up, if it's real, which I
1: assume it is. Um, it's probably just. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. the 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 amount of money that's in Afghanistan, there, there's got to be at least, at a minimum, hundreds of millions of dollars in cash just lying around in some places. Because uh, you got to think, we spent between one and two trillion dollars there. You know, uh, by all estimates. I mean, I I even said something before. You know, it's, it's imagine imagine if you had spent just $300 dollars once in detroit to fix infrastructure now imagine spending that kind of money every single day for almost 20 years Uh, it it really is disappointing knowing that you could and and i'm not for big government infrastructure projects i'm not saying the government should be spending this money but i am saying that money definitely would have been more beneficial spent here at home than it ever would have been spent over there
0: without a doubt yeah i think anybody with a (laughs) It's just it's just rational. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, and it's, I think Ron Paul would say that all the time. Like not not coming out in favor of infrastructure projects, but I mean, wouldn't you rather if you're going to spend money in in a foreign country to blow things up and then rebuild it, wouldn't you rather just not blow it up, not have to rebuild it, and just have the money here? Ideally, oh, yeah. not ideally, not tax it at all, so the people can just spend it.
1: Yeah. Oh, there's there's even like a thing about that about in the book where um, the Afghan um uh, so no it was uh, it was a, a member of the Taliban was brothers with someone in the Afghan government who was getting like contracts for building constructions so mm-hmm. the Taliban would blow up a bridge and then the guy with the contracts would come in and rebuild it and so it was kind of like a uh, kind of like a Keynesian model
0: I'm sure there's a ton of that shit that goes on,
1: oh like, easily, yeah, and and you just gotta think, you know there were there were probably thousands of people in Afghanistan who just made millions of dollars. Um, mm-hmm. and ultimately, you know it was it was all detrimental. it it was so terrible and then this is where i would like to get in with uh the one thing I, i'm not going to claim expertise when i was there i was just a senior airman i am you know i'm in no real position to speak on this because i i hold no you know authoritative rank or anything of like that but when i was there as a civil engineer i was a part of certain projects and i can tell you without a doubt the biggest military blunder of my lifetime uh, like single military plunder. I mean, there, there's much bigger, I mean, like invading Iraq is much bigger military plunder. But uh, if you were to say one single decision that could have prevented a lot of issues, it was giving up Bagram early on. What why, we so saw, why,
0: why do you think, not to get conspiratorial, but so that's what everyone seems to say. So why did that happen?
1: to be perfectly honest, I cannot give an answer to that. Um, Mm -hmm. I would just chalk it up to, uh, Helen's razor or, you know, I, I don't attribute it to malice. I attribute attribute it to, uh, incompetence. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it's just military incompetence. And I think it was this notion of, well, we're going to leave. And then, you know, we're just going to have this small residual force that's going to be protecting our, um, our, uh, uh, staff at the embassy or something like that and no like you 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 should have known that this government was going to collapse you should have known the taliban were going to take over quickly like this was this was an inevitability and so instead of like there were so many things you could have done to prevent all of this like you should have been uh the the um was it the panchia resistance uh North of Kabul, like you should have been, because of the historical uh, precedents, you know, in the pre two thousand one invasion, like they knew that place was going to be a place of um, defense against the Taliban. They should have been reinforcing it and like sending weaponry and um, personnel there in preparation. Like, okay, this government may collapse. How about we send like ten thousand troops here? Uh, not not like uh, not American, but like Afghan troops that are like going to be like committed to the cause. And instead, like the whole Afghan army just rolled over and like there was there was no preparation for a retreat point or, or like uh, to create like, a stronghold. And so uh, thankfully, one just kind of happened. But like there should have been preparations for that. There was no real safeguard for any of this. Um, the Biden administration was lying uh, through their teeth for months. Like, everything's okay. Everything's okay. It's like a naked gun where, you know, Frank Joven's like, there's nothing to see here. And like all the fireworks are going (laughs) off behind him and like people are on fire. (laughs) Um, uh, I mean,
0: that's the part that is just, it would be unbelievable if you, if you haven't just seen everything that this government has done in these past 10, 20 years. But yeah, for, I mean, for Joe Biden to say like, basically there's, there's no chance the Taliban takes over quickly. You know, we have, we have plenty of time. Um, and then for it to just be like, what was it, like a
1: week they took over, essentially? It, it, it happens so fast that, like, when you actually, so when you actually, like, go back and you look at it, um, the actual strategy the Taliban was imp- imp- uh, implicating was, like, worthy of being taught alongside, like, the tactics used by Alexander the Great. Like, it was fantastically brilliant.
0: They had a lot um, of time to think about it. I mean, they had
1: twenty but, years yeah. to plan this out. Yeah, but like, if you really want to know, like, this was this was probably even like faster than blitzkrieg. Like, this was so fast. Like, then putting all the check. Like, it it, it 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 appears that uh, you know, Biden was was trying to play like you know Candyland while these guys were playing either wrist or check or chess, and it's like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah everyone's always talking about like 4d chess and i'm like well this guy's using like six-dimensional risks with monopoly pieces and game of life mm-hmm. rules like, like this is this is the brilliance of the taliban and, and this is not praise for them i'm not supportive of them at all you know i am uh, i'm fearful of what's going to happen for the amkinians but you have to give credit where credit's due they planned all this brilliant to the point of when they started the process of taking over, I think that they were kind of frightened about how fast they were going. Because the whole, the whole government just sort of fell so fast that people didn't even realize. It, it, was, it was almost like there was no government at all.
0: Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me. I didn't realize how many Americans were, were over there. In, in living in Afghanistan or on trips, there was like a, a school trip to heard california that, yeah. that was in afghanistan
1: what the heck are people thinking like well i will say this afghanistan is absolutely beautiful i had said when i was over there you know if it weren't for the political turmoil this is a place where people would go, definitely go for vacations like this is where like people would go for spring break if they had the chance it's yeah. it's stunningly beautiful there well I, um, i'd still
0: rather go to afghanistan right now than
1: to australia oh god <laughs> started on that i don't know what's <laughs> going on down there
0: I mean that's kind of a joke, but really not really a joke. Um, probably, yeah, probably would rather go to Afghanistan than Australia. I would but agree. Let's, uh, so let, let's dig more into like your experience in Afghanistan, and especially like I, I don't know, did you have any interactions with the Afghani people when,
1: when you were there? I did. I did have lots of interactions with the Afghani's. Um, some of it was when I was doing my job. So so my job is, as I said, pavements and equipment operators. So I am a construction worker, but I am well-versed in all the uh, areas of Air Force Civil Engineering. And so I would be helping out with a multitude of different other fields, that being like plumbing structures, uh, electricians, power production, that sort of thing. Um, when I was over there, uh, my first job was... Uh, so we would do like a bunch of minor jobs to transporting uh, equipment and supplies, um, you know, operating equipment and certain uh, things, helping build certain things. My first major project, though, was the construction of what's called an Eaps yard. And this was just a, um, like a part of the flight line. And it was just a lot of concrete to pour. And, you know, it, it took several pours. It was like four or five. And, you know, it, was, it would get hot, it would get dirty, you know. Um, it, it was hard work, but it it was paid off. Although I did learn later on, and then mortar hit that, and I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> um, afterwards, uh, the next project was um, tore down the flight line fence that was there in order to uh, build a new flight line fence. While also we had a uh, project of we had an empty spot of land uh, that was like really murky, like muddy, pretty crappy. Our job was to transform that into a helicopter landing zone. Now, with these two projects, I did not see them through the entirety mm-hmm. of completion. I was sort of going back and forth onto those jobs because in April of that year, I uh, got put onto a thing called the rubber removal team. So, I flew off to a place called Jalalabad, which is where the uh, Zero Dark 30 raid happened. Um, yeah, the, the mission to kill bin Laden, that was where the mm-hmm. base was. Uh, was. Um, there was a very beautiful base. Anyone who's ever been there will tell you it's absolutely beautiful there. When I was there, I um, started doing rover removal. What we would do is there was, uh, six of us on the team, we would uh, th- uh, get the runway shut down. And uh, we spray down a chemical in, like, these little sections. Uh, we, and for, like, hours, we would uh, utilize pieces of equipment to um, scrub this stuff in. And um, then we would uh, put down water and spray, like, foam and everything like that. And it would uh, essentially remove the rubber from this runway. And this not only was good for appearance, but it was to prevent the rubber buildup that would cause you know issues for landing air landing and taking off aircraft. Uh, so we did that there. Then we went to a place called Shindan, which was uh, near the Iranian border. The we were there for about three weeks because our flight kept on getting delayed. Uh, then afterwards, we flew back to Bagram. Once I got to Bagram, like I was there for a day because. I had to go deliver a package. And so I went to a place called Mazar Sharif. Actually, you know what? I have uh, it on my shirt right here. So well, let's see.
0: There you go. Map of Af- Afghanistan. If you're not watching the video, uh, so, Michael has a map of Afghanistan he's showing on his shirt. So
1: here's Kabul, Bagram's right north of it. Jalalabad's here. Uh, um, Shindan is near a town called Herat. And uh, here's Mazar Sharif. So uh, yeah, I was there. For so a so r- roughly if
0: you had to compare Afghanistan to the, like the size of a region in the United States, do you know, like rough, like a rough comparison just for I mean, know, I, yeah. I probably
1: can look it up, but I mean, I would say it's kind of like the size, of maybe like a couple Western States, maybe I, I can't okay. say for certain, um, just cause it, it's very irregular in shape. Um, maybe it's just like a, a very big Colorado, maybe, um, Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. So, Colorado with some story.
0: other pieces of states <laughs> yeah. scattered around it. Yeah, no, uh, I get you. I get you. Probably,
1: yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. Once I got back from Mazashrif, I decided. Um, I took the advice of one of the guys I was with earlier on in the deployment, and I decided to volunteer at the medical clinic. So, the hospital at Bagram was like the best hospital in the whole country, and. I started working off in the ER and the ICU, and I developed a good bond with the, uh, the other troops that were working there, um, with the doctors and nurses, and I learned a lot about medical treatment from that, and so this helped prepare me for my time as a firefighter, where I learned to get uh, my medical first responder, and then eventually EMT uh, this year, so this kind of like built me up for it. Um, I put in over 50 hours of uh, additional time there. Uh, wow. Mind you, this was, this was after working hours. So I would do my work during the day and then I would go to the clinic at night.
0: This was your, your volunteer in- time. You were volunteering. Yes.
1: Oh, yes. Wow. And so while everyone else was doing downtime and you know, I, I would do downtime too, but uh, I would also put in time, you know, an hour and a or two hours there mm-hmm. and stuff. Sometimes nothing would happen. And, uh, you know, it was very boring, but other times, you know, I would be helping out. Like uh I, had a gunshot, um, wound victim. I, uh, and they let me treat him. Um, I did, I, I did a lot of stuff that I probably shouldn't have been able to do until I was like a med school student. <laughs> um, uh, it was, it was definitely so, a I mean, great that That's just, so.
0: uh, that's a great example though of, you know, just putting yourself in situations to learn where you are, mm-hmm. You know, where you're around people that are, you know, more experienced, you know, smarter than you it, with respects to doing that type of stuff. That's the position you want to, You want to be in. You want to put yourself in those positions.
1: Oh, yeah. I learned from everyone over there. And when I got on uh, my next team, we were on. Um, oh, gosh, I can't believe what that team was called. Um, well, we were building um, these shelters. For they never said it. They never specified which one, but it was for a three-letter organization. Um, take your pick. Uh, that um, doesn't we, matter.
0: Yeah.
1: yeah. So we were building these like shelters and stuff. So I got to be like up on a, a JLG lift, and you know, wearing a hard hat and harness, and you know basically be like fifty feet up in the air, uh, constructing stuff. And yeah, they let me do a, a ton of stuff. Um, I I even uh, when I was back at Bagram, I, we we shut down the runway there and we were the ones working on it. And so there's not many people that can say, "Oh, I shut down one of the busiest runways in the world to clean it."
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so and that, that was that was part of my job there. So the reason why I am so frustrated with all of it is going back to one of the projects I had, which was the helicopter landing. So that was completed when I was there. We had at least a dozen helicopter pads. Uh, the, the whole reason why we were doing a lot of stuff when we were there was we were we were centralizing and concentrating resources at Bagram for the drawdown of the forward operating bases and they were closing a bunch of these camps across the country because there was a lot of smaller camps you mm-hmm. know uh, basically like outposts everywhere they were closing all those they were going to close down all the other bases essentially they were going to centralize everything at Bagram for the inevitable drone drawdown this was late twenty. This is mid twenty fourteen. So even
0: um, back in twenty fourteen, they're starting to talk about drawdown. Yes, getting troops um, out. Yeah. Well,
1: well and, and that's the whole thing. Like we had a very small force of uh, military personnel, like below twenty five thousand, for like the entirety of the Bush years. It wasn't until Obama came into office that we had the surge of over a hundred thousand troops. When uh, I was there, it was like. 56,000 or so of us in the country. Mm-hmm. But the, you know, it wasn't just us there. There were NATO allies. I mean, I met French. I met British. I met... Um, uh, uh, I think I met Russian. Yeah, um, I met Czech Republicans. I met um, Mongolians. Wow. I, I, I met people from everywhere. Th- that's the amazing thing. Like, Bagram was... Uh, like a little UN or something like that it's, it's like a mm. it's a it's an amazing you know conjunction of a lot of different people and then of course you know you have all these people from different branches in the military you know I wasn't you um when I was at Jalalabad it was actually one of the funny moments was because I'm an air force engineer I'm always working and I'm not there to provide security You know, um, if if it comes down to me defending the base, you already lost the war. (laughs) Uh, But uh, so so I'm armed. I have my N9 pistol with me, but my M4 uh, rifle is locked up. You know, I only carry it with me to for like when I travel. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I'm not carrying this actively because I have to go into pieces of equipment at work. I have to pick up a shovel. I have to pick up a, uh, a pickaxe. I have to do a lot of work with my hands. So all the army that's there, they they can't see my rank very well. They don't know the Air Force ranks. So as I'm walking past them with my pistol, I keep getting saluted. And I'm like, I salute them back just out of like common courtesy. And I'm like, I'm not an officer guys. I'm not an officer. I'm not an officer. And honestly, the whole, re- like when, when you realize that some places enforce the saluting rule over there, I think that was a really stupid idea because that's like, you're begging for someone to get killed. <laughs> um,
0: why? Because I mean, everyone's saluting one person so they know who to shoot as their...
1: But, well, yeah, like, the, I mean, the go-to thing is killing an officer, just then you kill the leadership.
0: Um, yeah. uh,
1: which, in case anyone hears that, you know, out of out of contact, no, I'm not advocating that at all. Don't do not do that. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm saying, saying, though, that is, like, that, that paints a target on someone's back. Mm-hmm. And Bagram... Bagram was horrible in that aspect because this place called uh, Disney Boulevard. It's, it's not named for Disney. It's actually named for a troop that uh, had that last name. Um, unfortunately, he was killed. Uh, that was the main road in Bagram, and you know it has like this big walkway along it, and you would just see thousands of troops along it walking the distance. Walking was how you got everywhere in Bagram. We were as civil engineers. We had our own little compound. Uh, that was actually one of our projects too. Was like building up like t walls around there to protect our uh, to protect our uh, living area more. We had our own little compound. Other units didn't have that, and we had vehicles. And I'm not just talking about the heavy equipment vehicles. I'm talking about we had like pickup trucks and stuff. So, whenever we went to job sites, we all got into the six pack. We went to the job site. When we wanted to go to lunch, we all went to the DFAQ, the the dining facility. When we all uh, – so late at night or late in the afternoon when I uh, wanted to go volunteer, I said, can I borrow the pickup truck? And they're like, yeah, go take that, uh, bring it back, you know, when you come back. And so I'd load up my gear and I'd go to the hospital. When i get there, they're like, hey, you're always here. How do you get over here? Isn't it like a long walk from your compound? And I'm like, no, I uh, drove here. And they're like, you're kidding. I haven't been in a vehicle since I got here from the pax terminal you're you were you're allowed to drive, and I came to realize I'm like the one of the only people on this base that has a you know um the ability to have you know the government license as well as I have a flight line license. I can do anything on this base That's funny oh yeah uh, it was the same way at like uh my uh first active duty base i I had access to everything.
0: So, so you were talking about how the the helicopter landing pad was was kind of inter- integral in, uh, you know, one of the reasons why you were so. You know, why the 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 troops pulling out and the thirteen officers getting killed. Why that was impactful to you? I think you were telling that story. Did we did we hear so, that? So,
1: so like the thirteen troops getting killed, like that was essentially a blunder on the military because they created this this chaotic situation at the airport i don't know for certain if like a bombing like that wouldn't have happened at bagram because there were attacks at bagram consistently like there were mortar Mm -hmm. attacks there were attacks outside the base i'm not saying that that would not have happened but i am saying 100 certainty the chaos you saw of um, of the Afghani's flooding the airport along the tarmac, along the runway, clinging onto the airplane, never would have happened at Bagram. There's zero chance to get How's onto that? Bagram. To get onto Bagram Bagram is a fortress. It had T-wall protection around about 98% of the uh, border area. The only places that didn't have that were like a, a very strong uh tall fence that sort of like looked out an area where all you saw were like um, shepherds with like sheep and stuff in like a field area. So you had these like twenty foot tall walls around mm-hmm. the whole base, uh, and then there was the perimeter road. Then after that, there was fencing along there. So it's like an inner fence. Then there's like everything that's in the base. Then uh, when you get to the flight line, there's another fence because we had just put that fence up and it was ahead of it about ten feet. I, I don't know the specifics exactly. It's been so long. Um, I I, I helped install that fence it's a barbed wire fence you're you're not getting thousands of people over that and then you finally had this wide expanse of airfield if you even if you got a few people on there they would not have been able to flood aircraft like that It, it would have been impossible especially since Bagram's not surrounded by a massive city it's got a small village outside it but And it's without a doubt that, yeah, you probably would have had lots of uh, refugees come up from Kabul um, in in the thousands, but you you would have seen a lot more orderly than you Mm -hmm. did with what happened at the airport. Because the airport is surrounded by a city, and we didn't have the personnel to really maintain it as good as we could. Meanwhile, Bagram had all the facilities. It was armed. It it had... um, and I think the airport did have C-RAMs, but like, so did Bagram, Bagram had the C-RAM protections. That's a uh, little mini guns that shoot up in the air at any uh, targets that come in. Right. Um, like I said, it's a fortress. It's, it's entirely uh, built to withstand any type of attack. It's got the military equipment to, uh, to handle all the stuff it did. And then, um... Like I said, it had the helicopter landing zones, and that's not the only place you could you know, land a helicopter. There were other places on base. I'm saying we had like we made an additional dozen or so uh, landing pads for these helicopters. So if they had to evacuate the um, airport or the uh, embassy, like they did, they could have made the trek to Bagram. It might have been dangerous. I'm not saying it wouldn't have been, but at the end of the day, having that secondary point would have been much easier for aircraft to come in and out and for an orderly evacuation. Yeah, you know, the evacuation itself was humiliating, but then you see how many people died during it. That's just unforgivable. Yeah. You
0: have people falling from uh, hanging on the, onto the planes and falling to their mm-hmm. death. And and then uh, I forget who it was interviewing Joe Biden a couple days later, brings it up and Joe Biden's like, that was four or five days ago. Like, why are we still talking about this? Like,
1: it's like, uh, is, it's like, it's like super bad. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's like people don't forget.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, I want to get your opinion on this. So looking at Afghanistan, how this all unfolded there for 20 years, pulling out of there, is just a mess, a disaster could have been done. I would think a lot better, a lot cleaner. Um, whose fault is it? At this point it happened. Um, so there's really no point in rehashing it from my perspective. But do you think that the American public seeing that, seeing all of these all of this wasted money, seeing all of this equipment left behind billions of dollars um, wasted essentially? Uh, do you think that the appetite for war, the appetite for uh, intervening in foreign lands? do you think that the American people, don't have that appetite anymore and when inevitably uh the uh the regime brings forward another invasion another war do you think the american population will push back against it
1: that's a very uh good question actually um i will say you kind of already saw that back in 2015 um with the prospects of obama wanting to go into syria Mm-hmm. if uh you remember correctly uh, i think it was 2015 i want to say uh that's when he was like drawing you know he had like the red line in the sand yeah, against yeah. Assad. you know and like the, you know they wanted to go in like to take out isis they were talking about an invasion force that sort of thing uh i mean you already thought like they they wanted it with libya too and they, they kind of never had the they never had the ability to have a full-fledged invasion with that i think syria though was the nail the nail in the coffin for any further war expansions I think the double damage of Iraq and Afghanistan after all these years, I, I will say of any benefit that yes, the American people are sick and tired of these pointless wars. We've lost countless troops and spent trillions of dollars on these failed conflicts that didn't give us anything beneficial. I mean, you, you compare that to something like world war two, where you know, it, it really did feel like the threat of the end of the world was at stake, and we had to put forward this effort to defeat this evil force. And so, at the end of the war, despite America losing over four hundred thousand troops, like we knew, the sacrifices were worth the cost. We defeated evil powers. Like that was like at the end of the day, we knew we had won. Even despite all the crap that happens afterwards, but you know, from a from a realistic perspective, yes, at the end of the day, you, you can claim World War II was a victory. Meanwhile, this you see the countless amount of money and lives and time wasted, and you see it's not worth it. It's there's no justification. There's no there's there's zero benefit at all. I mean. Even from a resource allocation perspective, I hate to use this argument because I'm, I'm anti-colonialism. But you know, part of me wishes at least go into Iraq and take the oil, go into Afghanistan and take the rare earth metals. Like we didn't even do that. We we should have, you know, as much as we despise the Chinese, it's like at least they've got the Belt and Road Initiative. At least they have a plan for their colonization practices. We, on the other hand, just build up military bases and fund corporatism, and then we just destroy the places
0: yeah it's really just i mean yeah and I hundred percent agree with you we're not to, we're not saying the United States should be going and stealing resources, but just com- comparing it to yeah what what China does what i mean what uh i guess what russia has done in, in, yeah. to some degree in some places. But it's like we've got, just we've got to go just lazy. to go into these countries and essentially yeah, build up a force and flush money down the toilet. Just blow stuff up and rebuild it, blow stuff up and rebuild it. It's insanity. It's completely insane.
1: It's lazy colonialism is what it is. <laughs> I,
0: I don't know what it, it's what it's the broken window fallacy. <clears throat> That's all it, it's it's just blown up to uh to the largest degree. But we literally
1: blown up. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's not, not the best uh, comparison, I guess. But uh Michael, we've been going for about an hour here. Wanna give you a chance here before we end to uh talk about anything that I missed that, that you wanted to bring up, anything I didn't ask you about, or if there's uh any any parting words that you uh that you wanna give the audience?
1: Uh yeah. Um so some of the experiences I, I had in country over there, um I know I haven't been. I know people that were there for much longer time periods. People who spent many years over there on different deployments. Like, get uh, if you have the chance, outreach with these people. And I'd like to. I'd like to lump in the Iraq guys as well. They, you know, I, I have several friends who are Iraq vets, and they are hurting too. Because whereas you know a lot of people are talking about Afghanistan right now, Iraq just kind of got thrown under the rug and these guys spent you know they were in a much more dangerous situation iraq had more casualties it was a deadlier conflict and it um you know even though it feels you know it's more than 10 years ago it still stings in recent memory so please reach out to the iraq and afghanistan veterans anyone who served during the war on global war on terror um especially now with this 20th anniversary of 9-11. Um, I know libertarians are against certain things like the military industrial complex with um, you know the bloatedness of the Department of Defense, the federal government, uh, aggressive policing, that sort of thing. But do know that there are a lot of civil servants, public servants out there who do give it their all. They're not greedy people suckling at the taxpayer. T- no, they are serving the public trust, you know, they are doing the right thing in many regards. So please, you know, talk to people who are military veterans, uh, serving members, whether they be active guard or reserve, um, even like the OD employees, firefighters, um, EMS personnel, people who work in public hospitals. Everybody is dealing with a hard time right now because public servant service is, seen as only glorified amongst the political class and the reality of the situation is that the vast majority of public servants are not elected people but rather doing the day-to-day work that keeps society functioning and it is these people who should be I, i'm not saying glorify them i'm not saying you'll know, give ad a boys every single time you know they breathe mm-hmm. but definitely take note that they don't get their credit when credit is due and i feel like that is part of a problem and i and i definitely think that as libertarians or liberty-minded individuals that's people we need to start incorporating because at the end of the day and anybody listening to this who disagrees with this, i don't care in, our, in our capitalism is never going to happen you're never going to get rid of the government you know just take a look at this pandemic the government's never going away
0: I but percent agree
1: find ways to incorporate more communitarian aspects So that people aren't swayed by things like socialism or communism or big government overreach, but rather how you get people more intricately involved in their communities so they don't need an overreaching government apparatus. It doesn't help us when... You say get rid of the government, and then people start asking the questions. Well, what about firefighters? What about EMS? What about healthcare? You know, you're you, you can't make the privatization argument for everything instantaneously because you're always going to have pushback. So understand, there is going to be a need for public service, and we can make libertarian arguments for it.
0: Dude, I could not agree with you more. And I mean, that's been something that has been front of mind for me. We've been talking about that with with the uh, you know, with Mark and Brian as well. And I mean, it's, of course, if you're in libertarian circles on Twitter, you're hearing about this. I mean, libertarians have been selling this, uh, not to go way off topic, and now you can respond to this too and chime <laughs> in before we end. But liber- libertarians have been selling this, uh, you know, we'll just leave you alone and you can live your life. For for decades, and almost nobody's buying it because they don't want it. People want community. People want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. Um, That doesn't mean that we need to start endorsing big government and start endorsing coercion, but it means we need to find ways to lift others up through community, through voluntary means. Um, That's all we need to start doing, and we need to start building things on our own and stop... uh, I mean, not, not that political activism is, is worthless. I think there's a time and a place for it. But it's, I think you're to get a lot more bang for your buck, a lot more bang for your, uh, your labor and your resources in uh, building something in your local community. And like you're doing, you're out there vo- volunteering, and uh, you know, pe- people are seeing you do that. And like, when people see you do that and see you put your hand in the pile, you gain a certain amount of respect.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I, in my community, I, I'm now one of the most trusted people in the community. I'm only 29. And I, you know, if it weren't for my boss, who was the chief uh, of police and public safety director uh, wanting the job, I there was a possibility I was about to become my township supervisor, township of 50,000 mm-hmm. people. Like, did people trust me? So... I had an opportunity to get that, and unfortunately, I didn't. But maybe I was fortunate because I don't like the politics here. <laughs> um, <laughs> aside from that, though, I, I'd like to say two more things. Um, first, anyone listening to this, who, especially if they're young and everything like that, find ways to branch out and get out of a shell. I feel like uh, this isn't just libertarians in general, but rather just everyone who is like a political nerd it is this it becomes an obsession where everything is politics and there's less of life being lived i know you and i we talk about health mm-hmm. and fitness and you know improving our bodies all the time that's an important niche we need to focus on uh, like i said go out and volunteer be uh, have a diverse set of skill sets there's a million suits out there who have a poli sci degree and are pursuing economics or law find a way to stand out above the crowd. You gotta be better than everyone else if you want to have your voice heard and your opinions matter. The other thing is, if you want um, some good things on, on my viewpoint um, of certain things, there is a science fiction author who I agree with on so many principles and I think uh, it has so many great viewpoints. If people want to um, find out that, that he's very libertarian leaning, uh, his name is Daniel Suarez. He makes what are called techno thrillers. And these are things that revolve around um, challenging the authoritarian aspects of things like the internet, um, technology, uh, uh, space privatization, um, genetic engineering. Uh, some of his books take place in like the near future. Other, ta- other ones like are decades in the future. I highly recommend anyone listening to this to um, check out his books. They will give you insights onto things like uh, my combatants of uh, what I call neo-feudalism. That's what the political structure I view the country is heading toward. I can tell you about that another time, though. (laughs) Other other than that, though, um, yeah, just uh, everyone be kind to each other. (laughs) Uh, And like I said, go talk to Afghan and Iraq vets. Uh, They need the help as much as everyone else right now.
0: Sounds good, Michael. Do you want to leave a, a Twitter handle, Instagram handle, anything for people uh, to reach anyone, out to you?
1: If anyone wants to find me, I'm on Instagram at avatar mike phantom.
0: All right, man. Sounds good. Thanks for coming on the show. All right. Yes. Thank you for having me, man. And you take care. Stay safe. We're gonna take a, a quick break here. I want to tell you about another awesome podcast. And I know you're you're thinking to yourself, John, I don't need another podcast. There's so many podcasts. I'm here to tell you, you do. You do need another podcast. You need to listen to Good Morning Liberty with Nate and Charlie. Um, these are two guys that bring a fresh take to the Liberty Conversation. Um, they have a background in healthcare. They're entrepreneurs. They, uh, they're they very educated in, in finance and in markets and the stock market. They run a really interesting current events style show that keeps it uh, funny and entertaining. You definitely don't want to miss their segment every Friday, the Dumb Bleep of the Week. They do five shows per week. They're bringing you great content. Good morning, Liberty. Check them out. Okay, want to tell you also, about friend of the show, longtime supporter of Lions of Liberty, Tyler Colford, a.k.a. Crypto Man. And uh, his new track, his new song, First World Problems, if you haven't heard it, i going to play a clip of it in just a minute here. In the song, Tyler doesn't hold back. He, he rips into cancel culture, grifters, inflation. It's a really good song. It's a really fresh take. Please, wherever you listen to your music, be it Spotify, our Heart radio, Please go and uh, like and follow Crypto Man so you get all his music. Support our friend Tyler, a, uh, a guy out there who is fighting for liberty, uh, fighting that cultural battle. And uh, I'm going to play a clip of that new song right now. Check clean it
1: out. Clean no room, better clean no room. Cost of when internet is free. Flying
0: hope you guys enjoyed today's episode of Finding Freedom here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Of course, if you're new, maybe you don't know, but this is one of three shows on the Lions of Liberty podcast. We kick things off every Monday with the show hosted by Mark Claire, our uh, flagship program, longest running program. This past Monday, Mark had an excellent interview with Miles Wakeman. If you haven't heard that, go back, check it out, How to Live Life Unconstrained with Miles Wakeman, a great interview, one of Mark's best, in my opinion, if you missed it. Go back. It was Labor Day. You were probably drunk. Go back and listen. Then on Wednesday, of course, Electric Liberty Land with Brian McWilliams. Brian has been bringing the heat lately, Um, maybe a little controversial show this past Wednesday. If you missed it, go back, check it out. And if you are missing these shows, maybe you should be subscribing. Yes, you should be subscribing. um, Wherever you're listening to this podcast, go up, click the follow, subscribe button, whatever it is on the podcasting app that you're listening on. And think about supporting us. I mean, if you're not a member of our Lions of Liberty Pride, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. As I talked about at the top of the show, we have our Uh, bonus shows starting up, Degenerate Gamblers. You can access that. We have a show called Conspiracy Corner, um, where the guys dig into different conspiracies, always entertaining. You get uh, access to shows early. You get to watch uh, the video feed live of certain interviews. Lots of great content, merchandise, access to the show. You can influence the show, all kinds of different things. And of course, the Lions of Liberty store. Pride members get a discount. But you can go buy stuff even without being a member of the Pride. You just pay the uh, the regular retail price. And you can find that stuff by going to lionsofliberty.store. Check out our maybe greatest design and newest design, the Hands Up Don't Nuke t-shirt. I love it. Uh, go check it out. Got a little redneck looking guy on there with the bombs pointed at him with the Big print, hands up! Don't nuke an awesome shirt to uh, get yourself some attention and start some conversations. So check that out, LionsOfLiberty.store. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for the support. And always remember to keep your head up, and the fires of liberty burning.